0: In 1998, American Banknote spun off part of its business in an IPO. Investors were excited. American Banknote had been making products to prevent counterfeiting since the 18th century. This was a chance to invest in a company with a long tradition, and that made products which prevented fraud. But just six months after the IPO, the company said it needed to restate its financials. A company that had been created to prevent fraud had lied about its revenue. The stock price dropped 80% in just two days, and investors lost millions. The company's executives were put on trial and convicted. But then, nothing happened for an entire decade. Would these con artists ever face justice? I'm Michael McLaughlin, and this is Scheme. Let's do this. American Banknote was founded in 1795 to print money for the U.S. government. But by the 1990s, it had expanded into a variety of products. It made counterfeit-resistant checks, money orders, credit cards, passports, and stock and bond certificates. This expansion led to a lot of debt, and the company needed to pay off some of its loans. So in 1998, it spun off part of the company as American Banknote Holographics. This company specialized in making holograms, which are very helpful in determining whether something's counterfeit. What makes holograms so useful is that they're made with lasers, not ink, and that they feature depth and movement when viewed from different angles. This isn't possible with a two-dimensional image. American Banknote was the leader in holographic technology and it raised over $100 million from the IPO in July of 1998. Now, a lot of work goes into preparing for an IPO. The company needs to make extensive disclosures, such as filing prior periods financial statements with the SEC. Investors want to see that the company's profits are on an upward trajectory. Would you want to invest in a company with flat or declining profits? Investors want to see growth. So American banknote holographics was under pressure to show increasing profits in the years leading up to the IPO. And this is where things got ugly. Two years before the IPO, the company's president, Joshua Cantor, received the financials for the 1996 fiscal year end. And they didn't look good. The company had missed both its revenue and earnings targets. But rather than accept the bad news, Cantor decided to get creative. He had the company book revenue for two bill-and-hold sales and pretend that they had taken place in 1996. Bill-and-hold sales are sketchy to begin with. You're essentially saying that you made a sale even though you're still holding the inventory. But under strict circumstances, companies can recognize bill-and-hold sales. You're supposed to separate the inventory and make it clear the title for that inventory has passed to the customer. American banknote holographics didn't do this, and one of the sales kicked out and had to be reversed. But it's a moot point. The 1996 fiscal year was already over, so there was no way the company should have been recognizing revenue for 1996. This was clearly fraud. But this wasn't Cantor's only trick. He had the company book $800,000 of revenue for a customer in Japan. Now the customer had asked the company to develop holograms for a game called Pachinko. While American Banknote Holographics did do some work on this, the customer had said it would only pay contingent on approval from the Japanese government, which it never received. But Cantor was desperate, so he booked the revenue anyway. Thanks to the fraud, the company met its profit targets for 1996. Things were looking good until the end of 1997. The company once again failed to meet its profit target. You know Cantor had to be furious with that company's sales team. You mean I need to commit fraud again? Come on! In December, Cantor set up a legitimate bill and hold order with one of the company's largest customers, MasterCard. To book the revenue for 1997, he needed to produce the holograms by the end of the year. Problem was, the company didn't have the production capacity to make all the holograms by then. So Cantor hired another firm, Crown Roll Leaf, to help make the holograms. But that company couldn't finish the holograms in time either. Cantor didn't care, and he booked the revenue for 1997 anyway. But then the auditor, Deloitte, started asking questions. To cover his tracks, Cantor had employees backdate and change the receiving documents to make it look like Crown Roll Leaf had delivered the holograms in time. Cantor even convinced Crown Roll Leaf's security firm to say that their employees had personally witnessed the holograms being picked up on time. Cantor got away with this, but he knew he couldn't overuse the bill-and-hold strategy. The auditors were clearly on to him. He had to physically ship some product so he could show the shipping confirmations to the auditors. But how do you ship product when customers don't want any? There are lots of ways. In some cases, Cantor sent customers more product than they needed and told them just to return it. But then he booked revenue for the entire shipment. He also started shipping out products to customers who hadn't even submitted an order. And on New Year's Eve, Cantor showed he would truly do anything to make the numbers. He had employees box up unfinished products and ship them to a customer. Then he booked $1.3 million of revenue and celebrated the new year. If you're wondering, won't customers return unfinished products or products they didn't even order? The answer is yes, absolutely. But Cantor didn't care. He just wanted to make the numbers for 1997. He'd figure out 1998 when he got there. And that's the trouble with stealing from next year's sales. You constantly have to keep the fraud going. So after American banknote holographics went public, Cantor continued the fraud. He booked $4 million of revenue after shipping one customer pieces of scrap material in empty boxes. And yes, I'm serious. He literally shipped empty boxes to a customer. To another customer who hadn't even ordered anything, Cantor shipped test materials. Customers were no doubt getting upset about receiving all this garbage in the mail. So Cantor rented a warehouse and began shipping the products there instead. Customers didn't even know about the warehouse or order any of the products that were shipped there. These were completely bogus sales. But Cantor booked another $5.8 million of revenue this way. This was a lot of fraud and the company went several years without being caught. One way Cantor avoided detection was by keeping two sets of books. The accounting records were stored in a computer, which the auditors checked, but the actual records were written out by hand in a ledger, like in the old days. Thus, auditors never even saw the real accounting numbers. Now, if you know about auditing, you might be thinking, hey, the auditors should have sent confirmations to the customers to see if the amounts owed match the company's records. Well, The auditors did send those confirmations, but Cantor somehow convinced the customers to lie and confirm the false account balances. This fraud involved a lot of people, but a fraud that's dependent on so many people telling lies is bound to break down eventually. When the auditors were doing the audit for the 1998 fiscal year, they didn't just ask the customers to confirm the balances. Instead, they asked customers to forward the invoices that they'd received from the company. Now, the customers' invoices were identical in every way to the invoices that the auditors had received from American Banknote Holographics, except for one thing. The sales totals were different. The auditors reported this to the audit committee, and it triggered an investigation and a phone call to the SEC. Everyone in the C-suite resigned or was fired. And on January 19, 1999, American Banknote Holographics announced it'd be restating its financials. The stock price plummeted, going from $16 a share to $1.80 a share. Investors lost almost $200 million. When the restated financials came out, they showed the company had overstated revenue by 34% in 1997, but profit had been overstated by 167%. Cantor was arrested and charged with securities fraud. He was also charged with violating the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act by bribing a Saudi Arabian official. Apparently, he had transferred almost a quarter million dollars as a consulting fee to a Swiss bank account to try and win a contract. But the government wasn't satisfied to only convict Cantor. It wanted to take down the company's CEO, 59-year-old Morris Weissman. So on July 18, 2001, Weissman was indicted. Cantor testified against his former boss, saying that Weissman had approved the fraud and overseen the whole thing. The trial lasted five weeks, and the jury had no verdict after the first day of deliberations. But halfway through day two, the jury returned a verdict guilty of securities fraud, conspiracy, and lying to auditors. Weissman was going to prison for a long, long time. Or was he? Weissman was supposed to be sentenced in 2003. But it didn't happen. It wasn't until a decade later that Weissman was finally sentenced. In 2013, he was sentenced to time served. And since he'd been free on bond that entire time, this means Weissman spent a grand total of one day in jail. Now, he was ordered to pay $64 million of restitution, but I think he got off easy. I tried really hard to find out why it had taken so long to sentence him and all I could find was some articles about Weissman doing classified work for US intelligence. And that reminded me of the movie Catch Me If You Can about Frank Abagnale who got a reduced sentence for teaching the government how to catch other fraudsters. But you know what's really weird? Cantor wasn't sentenced for more than a decade either. In May of 2014, the court sentenced him to time served as well. This made slightly more sense though. The government said Cantor had cooperated with them for 15 years and met with them more than 40 times. His testimony was critical in convicting Weissman because some of the case documents had been lost in the 9-11 attacks. Thus the government couldn't have convicted the CEO Weissman without Cantor. Now you might be wondering what happened to the company, American Banknote Holographics. It got off pretty easy as well. The firm settled with the SEC, didn't admit any guilt, and paid just a $75,000 fine. But the parent corporation, American Banknote, declared bankruptcy in December of 1999. But American Banknote Holographics hung around. And in 2007, it was acquired by JDS Uniphase for $138 million. So what can we learn from all this? One lesson is that it's absolutely critical to question transactions that occur at the fiscal year end. In 1996 and 97, the company didn't commit fraud throughout the entire year. It was just a few weeks at the very end when Cantor saw they weren't going to meet their earnings targets. It's easy to blame the auditors for not catching this, but it's hard to detect fraud when there's collusion among so many people. Cantor convinced customers and even a third-party security agency to lie to the auditors. My first thought was that this guy must have been exceptionally charming. But then I remembered that he was convicted of bribing a foreign official, so he probably just paid everyone kickbacks to go along with the fraud. In any event, it's not possible for a single person to do what Cantor did. It truly takes a village to commit this kind of fraud. But I found it shocking that Weissman and Cantor didn't receive long prison sentences. Fortunately, Sarbanes-Oxley was passed in 2002 and it ensured that executives like Jeff Skilling of Enron received long prison sentences. By the way, did you know Jeff Skilling is out of prison now? He's trying to start an energy company and he's looking for investors. And no, I'm not kidding. Those former McKinsey consultants, they're the best. I'm Michael McLaughlin and you've been listening to Scheme.